Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. What's up, everybody? Welcome into another episode of Flippin' Bats. Today, we have a great one coming for you. I am joined by the legendary reporter for Fox, Tom Rinaldi. Now, this story is incredible. He now has the number one sports podcast in all of America. It is called Wesley, and it is the story about the only active baseball player to ever be murdered during the season. I'm really excited to have Tom on to talk all about this. It is a story that everybody should know about. And without further ado, here is a clip from the show and then Tom Rinaldi himself. Episode five, wrong place, wrong time. After a game in Chicago where Lyman would climb into the top 10 in the American League in hitting, he returns to Gary, Indiana to spend the night with family. It was a ritual he enjoyed, but this time he would never return to Chicago and never play in another game. That trip to Gary would cost him his life. All right, and here he is now, the legendary Fox Sports reporter, Tom Rinaldi, and the man behind the number one sports podcast in all of America right now. Tom, thank you so much for joining me, my friend. Ben, I'm happy to be a, I hope to earn the status friend of the show. But at this point, I'm just thrilled to be a guest. TBD, as of right now, you're a friend and then we'll see how it goes, Tom. Now, I'm just, so I, I want to get to Wesley in, in just a few minutes, but a little bit about you first. How did you fall in love with the game of baseball originally? I think like most people, and I'm sure your family and your friends and those in your community, I through Little League. Uh, most of what I've done in sports has come through my brother who loved sports. He's six years older than I am. He, he is not in the business itself per se, but I inherited my love for sport from him. Uh, our parents were really not sports fans, were really not involved with sport. Uh, but from the time I first picked up a bat and pitched, uh, certainly nowhere near the level of anyone named Verlander, but uh, I, I've always loved the game and I got to rediscover it Ben, our son just finished his high school career as a senior in New oh, Jersey, wow. uh, you know, losing in a, in a tough game in a state tournament. And now that that journey's come to an end, it, that all of those steps from coaching him in Little League to then seeing him go off and play high school baseball, varsity baseball uh, with wonderful teammates around him, that allowed me to sort of have the journey all over again, hopefully in the best ways. That's that's really cool. It allows you to kind of go back through the nostalgia that you had. It brings it all back for you. Uh, Tom, so you have had a legendary career to this point and have reported on some of the coolest stories, coolest sports stories of all time. When you look back on your career and let's talk baseball specifically, 
What are some of the baseball stories that stick out to you that you have reported on? Well, before I got to, yeah, I was at ESPN for nearly 20 years, Ben. And before I got there, uh, I was at a, a sports network called CNN SI, CNN Sports Illustrated. I'm much, much older than you. And through that assignment, I was able to be at some incredible moments that I'll never forget. I was at the Jeter flip game. Uh, I was at I was at the the 2001 World Series um, for the games in New York and and the games in Arizona. Uh, it just there have been a lot of one Bush throwing out that indelible first pitch. Oh wow! Uh, probably the favorite feature I've had the chance to tell this was at ESPN, was to go back to Panama, to the small fishing village where Mariano Rivera grew up, and to spend time with him. Uh, that was just a wonderful trip. He is as wonderful a man as he is dominant as a pitcher and obviously the, the greatest reliever in history. But to spend that time with him and around him, just very quickly, Ben, we for the principal interview that we did, mm -hmm. he lived in Westchester County in New York at the time. We had set up and we were ready, and we thought that Mariano would come in and sit down. He did come in and say, oh, no, before we roll, you have to come and have a meal with us. My wife has cooked for the crew. <laughs> No, this way. is when he's a legendary player already. So yeah, there's been some wonderful moments and some connections with players over the years. That's incredible. So just hearing you mention a few of those things, specifically the Bush throwing out the first pitch after the 9-11 situation. And for me, that just brings back a lot of emotions. And that was clearly a very emotional day. And it just got me to thinking with everything that you've done, you've told so many stories so well and so beautifully and it can make you know some of them being emotional has there ever been a story you've told that even moves you a little bit emotionally while you're doing it all the time and all the time i'm amazed at a couple of things i'm amazed at the specificity of human experience i'm a, i'm amazed at what people are willing to share and i'm so grateful for that and maybe most I am so moved and I have such respect for the boundless strength of people, what they bear, what they get through. And I think sport has become this incredibly wonderful, perhaps counterintuitive venue of unity. Nothing is, listen, we live in a divided time, a discordant time. We all know that. Nothing, in essence, is more divisive than sport in the starkest term. Ben wins, Tom loses. What's more divided than that? Yeah. Yet sports be has become this incredible venue of unity in our country. It's also become a place to celebrate achievement, I think, rather than traffic as much in cynicism. Sure, we can always look at and cast stones at any institution in the country. I understand that. And that includes the institutions in our sports. Mm -hmm. But what we see, how we're moved by what plays out in that forum, in the games that we love to watch, and then knowing and having the chance to invest in some of the coaches, the players, the teams, the seasons, and knowing about the journeys that led them there. Uh, it's such a privilege to be able to share some of those stories along the way. It's a lottery winning gig. Well, yeah, and absolutely. And, and you do do it so well. And I don't say that lightly. And, you know, a situation. Kind. Thank Yeah, I, I mean that. And a situation last year that kind of brought 
a couple of things together for me. You know, you have a movie in Field of Dreams that many people look back on, and it is, it's so emotional, Tom. I, every time I watch it, I cry. Every single time. And then last year, to be able to play a Major League Baseball game there and to be there, and I know you were there as well, it just kind of all hits you when you're out there in the middle of the cornfield. Talk about that experience last year. It's coming up again soon here in a, in a few days. Just talk about the Field of Dreams experience for you last year. Let me begin, Ben. Have you been there to Dyersville, to that venue? Yes, I was there last year at the game and will be there this year as well. You were? Yes. I, I, how would you describe it in the realm of everything else in the sport? Well, this is tough because to, you're going to describe it so articulately, and I'm going to try my best here to do it. So I, I would say the, the way I described it was I stepped on to the land and I walked back into time. I left where I was and everything I was thinking about and all my worries in the world, and I went back in time and appreciated baseball in its most purest, national, beautiful sense. Well, I'm not going to even attempt to compete with that <laughs> articulation. Don't ever downgrade your ability to describe or put into words what you felt. I think that's I think that's perfectly framed. I really do. It's an awesome, awesome event, and it really is singular. And that's a pretty mighty description when a sport has a history more than a century and a half old. And I think it was the way the game played out. But as you know, the way th there was a walk-off that ended it, the two teams that were involved, uh, the players emerging from the corn, which merged the incredible job yeah. done by P.T. Navarro with Fox and everything he had done in crafting the Open, the unbelievable job done by Pete Machesky in the truck. Um, it won the Emmy for the best sports event produced on American TV last year. I think rightfully so. We were able, uh, Ben, and we're, we're doing a similar sort of story this year. We were able to take the theme, not of the father and the son, which is a wonderful, powerful theme. There are so many great themes in Field of Dreams, but the Moonlight Graham theme, the, the desire to just have one chance and one opportunity. And last year, we told the story of a player who had just one chance, one at bat in his professional career and got a hit and never got another at bat. And that was Bannister, the, who then became a manager. We told people the story of how difficult it was for Bannister to get there and then a win manager of the year, an incredible journey. This year, we are also looking remarkably at another one of the five who got only one at bat, got a hit, and never got up to wow. the plate again. In this case, this story, uh, the story of a man named Roy Gleason, this involves not getting another opportunity, largely in part because he was drafted into mm. Vietnam and earning a Purple Heart the story of his World Series ring lost and then regained and what that one opportunity means, what his field of dreams is. We're so privileged to be able to tell stories like this, yeah. to talk to Roy and to hear all the game means to him.
And we hope that we're able to honor that story and the trust he's placed in us. That'll be in the pregame of Field of Dreams next okay. week. Wow. Well, I can't wait and can't wait to see you there. Uh, and, and you mentioned the game last year and how awesome the game was on the field. And to me, the game on the field was secondary to everything happening. And it really didn't feel like that mattered at all. And then it ended up being like one of the greatest games of all time. And it's like, this is the perfect situation. And you mentioned the walk-off, but also in that ninth inning, the Aaron Judge home run, or Giancarlo Stanton hit a home run, Aaron Judge as well. And it was just a really cool game. And Aaron Judge, being the figure that he is, is now on top of the world. He's hitting more home runs than ever. He's on pace to hit more homers in a single season than any Yankee of all time and break Roger Maris's record. We all know that. But, Tom, you sat down with Aaron Judge recently. And, you know, on the surface, we see big old number 99 plays outfield for the Yankees and he hits a lot of home runs. But you sat down with him. And I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, some things that we may not know about Aaron Judge. What did you learn about him? And, and what did you tell about Aaron Judge when you sat down with him? Listen, you know, we're not going whitewater rafting next weekend as much as I might wish we would. Uh, you know, we, we had our amount of time with him, but he could not have been more gracious, more humble and more inviting in a way. And, and he just was so accessible. Right. And I think part of the magic of that, Ben, is that when great players allow the world to know them, their victories move from individual to collective and so do their defeats because we feel that investment and attachment with them. One of the things that I loved that Judge shared, I asked him a question I've asked athletes many times through the years. What piece of criticism has stayed with you and motivated you more than others? And Judge initially was very, very gracious and said, you know what, I just sort of let, let those things go. They don't, I don't let them to stick around. Mm -hmm. And I said, but if there was one, and sure enough, he said, yeah, I went to a week-long baseball camp when I was in high school. And at the end of the camp, you get a report card for your performance. And I was graded a four or five as a hitter. I was graded in terms of a future prospect as most likely to play for a junior college, not a four-year college. He said, and when I was offered and had the opportunity to play at a four-year college, I wanted to reach back to that coach, and I didn't. When I got drafted, I wanted to reach out to that coach, and I didn't. But I still have the card, that no report way. card, in a file folder in my parents' house. It's still there. And I said, why? Why hang on to that? He said, so that you don't forget. So that you don't forget. And you hope that maybe they've tuned in here and there and seen me play. I think they know. <laughs> and, and, and that is great line. Because I, I really don't think I'm a four or a five as a hitter. <laughs> out of 10 no I think you're safe there Aaron with that evaluation I think you're safe that's incredible and also side note here Tom that's what makes you so legendary is baseball players can be hard to crack you ask a question they can give you a borderline they can give you a just straight answer you ask that follow-up 
And but if there was one and you got such a great answer. So when I see a field of dreams, I'm going to pick your brain on on how you do it, because that that's that's a really cool story there. Um, so I also want to talk to you about Angel Stadium this year and earlier a few weeks ago. You know, a, a lot uh, of people will uh, say uh-oh. a lot uh-oh. of people will say and I've been hearing this a lot. The best pitcher to pitch on the mound at Angel Stadium this year was Shohei Otani. And I say, well, hold on. Hold on. That's not true. My good friend Tom Rinaldi threw out the first pitch at Angel Stadium not too long ago, and I think he takes the prize there. So, Tom, how did the first pitch go at Angel Stadium the other day? Okay, so I I was very fortunate to have the opportunity. It's obviously a terrific honor. Uh, They were clearly down to the very bottom of the barrel and end of the roster of possibilities that they would invite me. Uh, but you don't know, Ben. And uh, have you thrown out a first pitch? I have in, before. In, yeah. in that, you not, have not okay. at a not at a big league stadium. I've done it in a minor league stadium, but not not the level you did it. Okay, so I don't know if you experienced this. Obviously, you have a completely different pedigree in the game uh, than I do, <laughs> uh, because I don't have one. But the the mound is tarped, and you don't know if the tarp is coming off or remaining on. And so the great folks at the Angels said, if the tarp comes off and you wish to throw from the rubber, please do. And I said, will it be off? <laughs> and and the, the staff says, well, we, we don't know that. that. Sometimes it's off and sometimes it remains on just the way the timing works out. So with that, there's there's probably a little bit of a silent prayer that I hate to admit that the tarp remains on. Because if the tarp comes off and you don't walk up there and throw from the mound, I was told by our son, Jack, I was told by Eric Shanks, the president of the network, I was told by different voices of significance in my life, either never to come home if you bounce it Mm -hmm. and don't bother to ever look for another paycheck from Fox (laughs) because your employment is terminated. Um, Just giving you that in advance. The tarp remained on. I was able to throw from in front of the mound. And uh, I would generously say I was high and inside. Uh, our son called it chin music, which is why he's our son and I love him. But uh, it really was not chin music like enough. That I much I will tell you. This is a kind angle where you really won't be able to see. So it definitely got there, but it was high and inside, not a strike. It was a chin soft jazz song. <laughs> it was a chin ballad, <laughs> chin ballad, chin yacht rock. Were you, you were you hoping the tarp was on or were you hoping it was off? I had thrown probably 40 pitches to Jack uh, the day before, before <laughs> I flew out. Yeah. Um, and Jack was trying to fill my sails with confidence Ben to tell me, you know, you got this, you got this dad, but there's probably a little part of me, which was glad I didn't have to face the risk. Yeah. So Tom, let's move on to Wesley, the number one sports podcast in all of America. The first thing I want to ask you is when it comes to Lyman's story, what is it that why couldn't you resist telling this story? I had told the story, Ben, uh, 14 years earlier as a television feature. And in doing so, began to discover the different aspects and angles of Lyman Wesley Bostock Jr.'s life that could not fit in the confines of a TV story, even though we had a lot of time to tell it. And it's 13 and a half minutes, the the feature that we did in 2008. It was 
uh, produced by the fantastic Willie Weinbaum at ESPN. But we couldn't even begin to get into a lot of those fascinating layers of Lyman's life. Uh, the second part of why I wanted to revisit this is selfish, and it represents a bit of a professional regret. I was able ultimately to encounter the man that killed Lyman 30 years after the murder. And I really mishandled that encounter. Uh, and it, it, it has continued to echo and been something that sat with me in, in a bad way. And this gave me an opportunity uh, maybe to vent that and revisit that. The emotional heart and center of this story is Euveen Whistler, Lyman's widow who was so brave in going back to deep trauma, Ben, and talking about losing her husband before they were able to have children, married just five years, uh, and the great pain and, and the great trauma that created in her life, and her willingness with such openness and courage to revisit some of the most difficult moments of her life. She did that because she wanted people to know what we wanted people to know much more about this incredible man than the way he died. Of course, that's a part of his story. As the only major league player active ever to be murdered during a season. Astoundingly, so few people seem to know the story, but we wanted people to know about the breadth and wonder of his life as well. So this is this story is truly incredible. And now six episodes have come out. There's still two more to come. And I, I've been listening throughout and and a question I have for you is and you just said you told the story 14 years ago. Why now, Tom, why now decide to tell this story on a much greater, larger scale and be able to do it how you want to do it? I think a couple of reasons, Ben, that's a terrific question. Here's one of them that some of the most formative and powerful experiences in Lyman's life happened when he first arrived. And I so appreciate you listening, giving the podcast a try. You would then know from the earliest episode that we delve into his early life. And then as he arrives on campus, that was then San Fernando Valley State. It's now Cal State Northridge in the fall of 1968. The tumult and unrest that Lyman is involved in, which envelops the entire campus, a huge campus, where he's end up, he ends up being charged with multiple felonies, ultimately going to jail, perhaps costing himself any future in baseball before his paths really even started. All of that has, in some ways, such a clear connection, resonance, and relevance to the early years of this decade. Anyone who's lived through the first couple of years of the 2020s can relate to the later years of the 1960s in some ways. And certainly through Lyman's life and his experiences, we think people will hear and sense and feel that relevance now. That's one of the reasons we wanted to tell it now. So it is truly insane to me that not many people know this story of Lyman Bostock and Listening back, it is remarkable, and it is a crazy story, and you tell it so well. And, you know, for people that don't know, and the majority of people, the strong majority of people don't know the name and, and haven't heard the name until now. So let people know how good of a player Lyman was and, and who would be a comp that people can relate to and, and know the name. 
I'll get to the comp in a minute, but far greater authority than me, a far greater authorities in the game than me, give you their, in essence, testimony. They're vouching for Lyman's talent. Players like Rod Carew, who mentored Lyman, he finished, and albeit by a massive gap, because Carew had hit, you know, nearly 390, if, if you can remember, at, at one point in uh, the late 70s, flirting with 400, that Lyman finished second in the American League in batting that season. George Brett, who vouches for him, another an all-time great player. These are both Hall of Fame players. And listen, we understand the incredibly rarefied air of Cooperstown, how incredibly hard it is to get anywhere near 3,000 hits, and yet both suggested that with the massive variables of health and longevity assured, which are never assured for a player, Lyman could have approached that. That's how wow. talented he was. Career 311 hitter in four seasons, despite the fact that in his last season, he started with a new team, the Angels, basically going two for his first 38 because he felt this. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. He felt this great pressure and how mm -hmm. he ultimately reacted to that. But the comp I would say right now, or not currently playing, but certainly much more recently, Ben, I think is Ichiro. That a player who wow. didn't always hit for great power, but hit to all fields, was a great hit for average player, a great contact player, a great contact hitter, very rarely struck out. That's Lyman Bostock. And again, to, to be a career 311 hitter, not through one, not through a half season, one season, a season and a half, four seasons into your career, that's the same batting average as Jackie Robinson. It's only four seasons, but that only adds to the tragedy right. competitively of what was lost on the field. Also, great speed and an outstanding fielder. Wow. Career 311 hitter. I mean, this isn't the story. It is the story of the only active baseball player to be murdered in season. But this guy was a potential future Hall of Fame baseball player. And not only do we not know him as we should we don't know this story as well as we should and and it's truly remarkable and there's guys like rod carew and george brett that are vouching for this guy i mean how did lyman's life intersect with the rod carew and and george brett so when when lyman he's a very late draft choice almost 600 as a draft pick and oh, wow. and in essence yeah to, to give you an idea but he gets through and gets flies through the minors again because the all at every level he hits so well for average uh, you know he doesn't hit for power but he hits so well for average and by the time he breaks in he, he's he signs with the twins originally out of college and Carew is cast by Lyman Ben immediately as that's a guy I'm gonna spend my time with and Carew notes in the podcast, he had not really found a player to this point in his career so eager to learn from him. Uh, and a player who also had his own confidence and swagger, who told Rod, you know, you're giving me all these lessons and I love you for them, but I'm going to use them to take batting titles from you. And Carew loved that. He loved the mix of the humility of wanting to learn from a great but the confidence to believe that those lessons would create greatness for Lyman himself. 
He also had a, a magnetic personality. He, he was called, you know, Mr. Jibber Jabber by so many people in, in and around the clubhouse as just this magnetic personality. He was a media favorite, even though he wasn't in large markets till the very end. In all those respects, Ben, there's so much that swirls around Lyman. And he's really, I know it can sound like a cliche, but he really is entering his prime when he's tragically killed. Wow. So how do his, how do Lyman's life and, and social activism, he was an activist as well. Like, how does that, um, how, how is it similar to what we see today? I mean, he was an incredible person as well. We hearken, right. We hearken back to this a little bit when he arrives on campus mm -hmm. and he's involved in, in a protest with, with students of color who are protesting something that happens outside of his sport, mm -hmm. a, a white coach who kicks a black football player during a game and athletes and students of color go to the athletic director wanting to know what accountability there's going to be for the coach. He then says, you need to take it up with the administration. They organize, they do, they go to the administration building and the accounts of what happened are really varied then about whether it was a takeover, whether it was a sit-in, et cetera. Lyman ends up again facing, you know, several charges, including multiple felonies. He ultimately goes to jail for his part in it. By the way, the person who picks him up from the L.A. County Jail, he, he serves a short sentence of, you know, just short of a month. After he gets out, the person who picks him up is his college coach to then take him to breakfast to say, oh, we hope that this, this is done. We need you. We know you're a talented player. And Lyman is a really terrific college player, which lends itself to him being drafted. But to go back to that initial slump, Ben, when he signs one of the biggest contracts, I think anybody can relate to this, right? Mm -hmm. He signs the big contract. He comes back to Southern California where he had spent part of his childhood. He spurns the Yankees. He spurns the Mets. Steinbrenner sends Reggie Jackson to try to recruit him. He's wow. a big, big deal as a free agent. He chooses the Angels and Gene Autry and goes into a massive slump. After the first month, he's come off a season, Ben. Sorry for the long answer, but I really no. want people to hear this context and hopefully they're triggered to listen. He had made $20,000 his last season for the season in 1977. What? Yeah. He signs a $2.3 million contract with the Angels. He goes in this terrible slump and he goes to Autry and ownership and says, I don't want my salary for this month. Wow. I have not earned it. And Autry and the general manager tell him, if you hit a home run, if you get three hits a game, every game, the rest of the season, we're not going to pay any more Lyman. Just relax. You'll be fine. And they pay him. He donates every dime of the month to charity. Let me ask you, Ben. Can you think of a comp, baseball or not, of any athlete who's ever done that? Tom, the, the comp that comes to mind hearing that, I haven't heard of that, but the, the Roberto Clemente is, is a name that yes. comes to mind. Absolutely. I mean, great comp in terms of his generosity, giving back to his people, yeah. caring about his homeland and his heritage. Here you have a player who 
you know, and Roberto Clemente, rightfully so, an all-time great Hall of Famer, revered, and one of the great humanitarians be in all sport. And yet here you have Lyman who chooses to do this, and somehow, some way, his story is largely forgotten. Yeah. And that was a big motivation to try to share his story again, beyond just the way he died. Wow. That the story of giving the paycheck away is, is that's eye opening. That's uh that's, that's special. Uh, so Tom, you mentioned earlier when we were talking that you encountered Bostock's killer and it clearly affected you just hearing the way you talked about it. And I, I want to ask you, how did that encounter go and, and how did it impact you? So we, we arrived at Leonard Smith's tenement, his apartment where he was living. Incredibly, you can't make this up either, Ben. Six blocks away from the intersection where he killed Lyman in Gary, Indiana. That's where he lived. Six blocks away from the murder scene. And 30 years later, that's where we found him. He was pulling up, coming back from picking up groceries. I was wearing a, a microphone. Uh, our cameraman, Joe Jans, was across the street. So that we didn't want to ambush him with a lens right, right in his face. Um, I encounter him as he gets out of the car. And we play portions of that encounter in the later episodes and I, I sort of go through, we allow people to hear and make their own judgment. But the question that comes back time and time again for me, Ben, it's clear Leonard wants nothing to do with me. I mean, that's clear. But what value is there, Ben, if you can cast yourself in my spot now doing what you do? Even if you don't get the answer, what value is there in knowing you asked the question? Whether it's to serve the audience whether it's to act as proxy for the family or whether it's just for your own curiosity. And because the man that emerged from that car was so diminished physically, had been ravaged by time and whatever weight he carried, and that's purely speculative because he certainly didn't tell me any weight he carried, I just didn't ask many of the questions that I should have. And I think that the audience, any viewer or listener would have wanted, let alone the family would have wanted. And you also hear in the later episodes, the family's take on the encounter as well. We wanted to include that. Wow. So in that moment, Tom, and, and I know this is something that you've said you, you've lived with and, and you wish you had asked in that moment. Why, do you, why didn't you ask it? Was it because of the way he looked? It looked like he had carried it his whole life and you just felt like, hey, I, I'm not going to ask this, this question. In essence, yes, Ben. Yeah. I, I, we go through and explain, at least I, I explain as best I can, why I took the tack that I did, which was really the tack of least resistance, mm -hmm. sort of pitifully. But Leonard looked somewhat pitiful to me. Uh, and again, you hear this unfold in the encounter, and I describe walking not with one but two canes because he's deeply palsied, really even unable to carry his own groceries. Ben, here's a guy who killed Lyman Bostock and through a miscarriage of justice, through uh, and now an outdated 
loophole of not responsible by reason of insanity. And again, we, we take you through the entire trial and what unfolds. He does not go to prison. He goes to a state mental hospital where, of course, he is deemed sane a short time later. To not go to jail then, Ben, to go free. And we explain and you hear from the people impacted by this decision, the rage that it sparked, et cetera. And with all of that, when I saw this man get out of the car, there were some basic questions to ask him, Ben, the most basic. What did you know? What have you come to learn about the man you killed? Why have you never expressed any remorse toward the family? What guilt, if any, do you feel for what you did that day? Why did you lower that shotgun and fire? I mean, those are fundamental questions. That's how many of those I asked. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Yeah. Zero. Well... Just hearing you explain the way he looked on the street, I know the questions weren't asked, but it certainly feels like we know the answers. That man has carried a lot with him in his life, and uh, I, I know you say he didn't answer that and didn't say that, but I, I do think we, we have the answer to that based off of his appearance and the way he looks and has carried himself throughout his life. Um, so what I, what I want to ask is, the, what you just explained is kind of episode five and six, which I just recently listened to and, and are the last two that have come out. Five, we hear of the death. Six is the trial. There's still two more episodes, Tom. So we've kind of heard, like, you, you think this is what it leads up to, his death and then the trial. What can we look forward to in episodes seven and eight of Wesley? So f five, you're right. Five is the episode that revolves around Lyman's murder. Six is uh, largely spent, Ben, on the immediate aftermath of what happened. And I'll ask you this question. The in incredibly, improbably, the angels, Lyman died between 1.30 and 2 a.m. on the morning of September 24th. He was shot late on a Saturday night, died early on a Sunday morning. The angels played their day game that day. They played an afternoon game, the final game in the series against the White Sox that day. Just a few hours later. If, that, if this were to happen today, how do you think it would have unfolded? What do you think baseball's reaction would have been, let alone the franchise? Wow. Never, never would happen. So we spend time as the players talk about you know, his teammates, his surviving teammates now, Carney Lansford, mm -hmm. 15 seasons, World Series champion, batting title uh, winner, uh, just an, outst you know, an outstanding player. He batted for a lineman in that first game. Breaks down in tears as he describes, again, you can't make it up. What happened in that first at bat, filling in for him in the lineup? You can guess it. 
he homered. There, it's unbelievable, Tom. I look at D. Gordon and and what happened years ago after the death Great of his good friend. Great comp there. Baseball is truly there. There's something special there, and and just hearing that is unbelievable. There, there's something happening that you know. It just seems like baseball has an incredible way of telling stories and 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 just putting a, a bow on whether it be a sad tragic story or or something else but that is incredible and that's that's what unfolded there's also stuff which is not nearly as if you will as fulfilling sentimentally there's the real as you heard ben the real feelings of anger among the teammates several of whom had said to lyman that they were going to go back with him to gary there, there was the one family. guy that even was supposed to go, and he ran down into the lobby, but Lyman had already taken off, and he missed it by two seconds, and he was going to be in the car with him when all that happened. And it seemed like he felt a little bit of remorse, if you will. Like, could I have changed this? Would he have done something differently if I was in the car, and would he still be alive? All right, that's Kenny Landro, another outstanding player who will resonate with you know with contemporaries of mine or folks who are older. Ben, uh, a terrific player, and as he says, you never get over it. The wondering, if I had gone with him, if I had come down in time, does that night take a different path and different shape? Uh, so all of that unfolds in six, seven. We delve. You, we introduce the case, sort of the back end of six. We take you through the the improbabilities of what happened in seven, how it adjudicates the way it does ultimately. And then eight is a finale, which really pays heed to Lyman's legacy, how his case led to important changes in the law in the state of Indiana, legislatively, and how those changes spread across the rest of the country. Uh, We talk about, again, still the memories from players who to this day choke up talking about his personality as much as his performance. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, we hear mostly from Lyman's family and, and Yuveen, who's really the central voice. Tom, you did such a good job and it was so beautifully done telling this story. So I, I want to hear a little bit before, before we go about the behind the scenes process here. I mean, you were all over the place doing this. You've done so much to, to make this project come to life. So talk a little bit about the behind the scenes of making this project with Fox. I'm just so grateful. Fox has never done this before, Ben. This is new. I mean, there are, you know, your podcast is amazing. It's got a tremendous following. It's really successful. And I say kudos to you. Fox has not done anything episodically like this, where you take a story. It's not a guest-based platform. And I, again, I'm so grateful to you for having me on as a guest to try to share this with people and hopefully spark them to listen. But in not having done that before, I'm just so grateful to to Eric Shanks, uh, to Charlie Dixon, to the leadership there who were so open to this idea and saying, it doesn't matter that we haven't done it before. We really think it will be intriguing. We think it can be something that people would want to listen to across you know, multiple episodes, not knowing if it would be four or five, and ultimately it grew to eight. Uh, I'm, I'm also, you know, intrigued by what the possibilities are for what the next one will be as well. You know, we feel like, again, we, we've had some success with it. We're grateful that people uh, have really responded to it the way they have. 
and we're eager to see what will come next. Well, Tom, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a lot of fun, and I've really enjoyed the first six episodes. Episodes seven and eight are coming out when? When do those episodes come out? Those are out Monday, and then all eight episodes will be out. Obviously, a lot of people like to binge content of this nature if it intrigues them and they get hooked and they want to go from episode to episode. The full breadth of the series will be out now. That comes out Monday. Uh, We're excited about that. Um, It's available everywhere people get their podcasts, um, Apple, Spotify, everywhere. And if people haven't given episodic podcasts a try, we hope that this will encourage them to do so. I think, Ben, you can speak to the fact that it's not just a series of voices Mm -hmm. or interviews. There's sound design done by Steve Porter magnificently. There's original score, which he did. There's sound effect. It's essentially an immersive experience for the listener, or at least that's the goal. Well, Tom, thank you for telling the story as well as you did. And thank you for taking the time to come on here and tell the story because it was really cool to, to hear the behind the scenes of it. And it was really cool to have the greatest pitcher that has ever stepped on the Angels mound on Flippin' Bats here today. Or right in front of the mound. <laughs> right in front of the mound. Yeah. Right in front of the mound, yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, Ben. Of course, Tom. And I would like to declare you officially a friend of the pod. Oh my God. I I mean, (laughs) listen, now, now we go. Now we go. Yeah. Tom, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you. See ya. All right. I just wanted to thank Tom Rinaldi for joining me and sharing the behind the scenes of telling that story. Admittedly, I am 30 years old. I have watched baseball my entire life. And the fact that I didn't know more about this story before now, that's the reason Tom decided to tell it, and I'm really glad he did. So make sure you all go listen to that. It is called Wesley. It is right now the number one sports podcast in all of America. So check that out. I appreciate it. I hope you guys enjoyed listening. I enjoyed listening to that as well. And this has been another episode of Flipping Bats. Thank you all for listening to this. Make sure you like, subscribe, wherever you listen to your podcast, Apple, Spotify, anywhere you listen. We're on all social media as well, at Flippin' Bats Pod, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and you can watch every episode on YouTube as well, at Flippin' Bats Pod. Thanks again to Tom Rinaldi. I hope you all enjoyed it, and I will see you next time for another episode of Flippin' Bats.